The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. All right. Well, I, I mentioned that we were in Genesis. Some of you were not here last week. Some of you, maybe this is your first time today. Just so you know, we are going through the book of Genesis. Whoa, 50 chapters? No, we're, I'm committed to the first three chapters, I said, because there are 50 chapters in Genesis. And sometimes I can talk a lot. And so 50 chapters would just be maybe too much. Um, so at least I thought it'd be edifying and beneficial to go through the first three chapters of Genesis because it's so critical. It's the first book in the Bible. Those are the first three chapters in the Bible. They are absolutely foundational to, the, to understanding, actually, the rest of the Old Testament and also the New Testament and the full meaning of the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, there's much benefit to studying Genesis 1 through 3. And what we're doing is we're going verse by verse. The way God gave it, that's how we want to study it and apply it to our life. Uh, just to bring you up to speed, if you weren't here last week, or maybe this is your first time today, this is about our third message on Genesis. We're in chapter 1. We're doing verse 1 today. And to bring you up to speed of what we've covered thus far, just kind of the high points to give you context, uh, the book of Genesis, written by Moses, might be a revelation to some of you, because modern-day critical scholarship says it wasn't written by Moses, but Jesus and others said, no, it was written by Moses, so that's the truth. So that means it's about 1400 B.C. that it was written by Moses as he was leading about 2 million Israelites out of Egypt into the Promised Land. This is when he wrote this book and the first five books of the Old Testament, 1400 B.C. That means the book of Genesis is 3,400 years old, and we still have it completely intact. It's amazing because of the providential work of God preserving this wonderful book for us. We also noted that Jesus taught on the book of Genesis. He did it frequently, publicly, specifically. Many incidents he referred to right out of the book of Genesis. He taught it literally. He taught it authoritatively. So Jesus took Genesis at face value. And who was the greatest Old Testament teacher in the history of the earth and probably the universe, Jesus. And that was his view of Genesis. So that's really important to keep in mind, that he just took it at face value. It could be understood by anyone reading it because of the way God wrote it very clearly. And Jesus said it was literal, it was historical, it was binding, it was the word of God, and it was beneficial for God's people to know. And so we want to emulate and follow the pattern of Jesus and the apostles, by the way, who took it literally Another thing we said and hinted at already is that Genesis chapter 1 through 3 is absolutely foundational for a Christian. If you're a believer, you can't have a complete, balanced, fully orbed Christian worldview or biblical worldview if you do not understand Genesis 1 through 3 or if the content of Genesis 1 through 3 and its truths are not informing your worldview, really forming and solidifying your basic presuppositions in life and how you view reality. You need Genesis 1 through 3 because of so many foundational truths that are in Genesis 1 through 3, and we'll see what they are. Those absolutely foundational truths, just basic things, like it tells us how everything began. There is not one incident going on in earth or life today that doesn't find its origin or its beginning hinted at or explicitly revealed in Genesis 1 through 3, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Also, Genesis 1 through 3 and the rest of the book of Genesis tells us what God is like very specifically. So that's foundational. Uh, another important thing we covered, 
uh, actually, we haven't gone into a whole lot of detail about this specifically, but Genesis 1 through 3, there's a reason I chose 1 through 3. I could have chosen 1 through 3 or 1 through 11 or 1 through 50. And the reason I chose 1 through 3 is because, believe it or not, in the world over, in the Christian world, and even that includes here in America, in the evangelical Christian world, typical mainline churches, Genesis 1 through 3 is considered controversial. It's actually kind of a hot potato. And many churches actually believe they shouldn't talk about it. They shouldn't preach on it. They shouldn't. I'm doing the worst thing you could do is go verse by verse through Genesis 1 through 3, taking it literally. Because some Christians would say that's divisive. It is controversial. It's exclusionary. And I could name some of the most well-known evangelical theologians today. If I started naming them, you'd say, oh, yeah, I know him. Oh, I respect him. And as do I, these theologians at the same time say they believe in the Bible, but they say we shouldn't delve too much into Genesis, especially 1 through 3, because it's too controversial. It divides Christians. And they would posit, let's focus on the things that unite, not divide in the Bible. Like, let's just talk about Jesus' love and the gospel. That's really the most important thing. Let's not talk about these peripheral, secondary, tangential, non-important issues like creation, <laughs> Genesis 1 through 3. And I would say, no, I disagree, because Genesis 1 through 3 is in the Bible, and all of the Bible is important, every chapter is important, every book is equally important. That's affirmed by Jesus, every jot and tittle, he said, meaning the whole Bible, equally important. 2 Timothy 3.16 is explicit that all Scripture, all the writings in the Bible are God-breathed. They came from God, and they are profitable. They are useful. We, we need to benefit from them. And then the Apostle Paul reiterated that in Acts chapter 20 to the elders, saying that he was committed to teaching the whole counsel of God. What does that mean? The whole Bible. When Jesus rose from the dead, the first thing he did to two disciples he met on the road, it said he taught them the Old Testament scriptures regarding himself and his promises, beginning with Genesis. So absolutely important. And I wouldn't say that Genesis 1 through 3 is controversial. I would say that truth is controversial. The Bible is controversial. Jesus is controversial. The gospel is a scandal. The gospel is offensive. To talk to somebody about being a sinner upsets sinners. So when we get resistance, we shouldn't be surprised. So we don't compromise. We don't back down. We don't cave. We teach God's word. So that's going to be our attitude. That's going to be our approach. And we should, as Christians, be thankful for the clarity and just the comprehensive nature of the revelation he's given to us so we can know all things. And you're going to be blessed as a result. Uh, last week, we began with verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and we introduced an overview of that all-important verse. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So if you look at the first verse there, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Last week, I think I went about an hour and five minutes. I'm not sure. I didn't go back and look at the timing of it. Usually about 50 to 55 minutes, and wow, time just went by. Hour and five minutes, and some of you are probably thinking, wow, he spent an hour and five minutes on one verse. And we're going to go all the way to chapter 3. Now, if you're thinking that, shame on you, correct, because yeah, that's not true. I didn't spend an hour and five minutes on one verse. I spent an hour and five minutes on one word. <laughs> and that was the first word of Genesis 1-1. Bereshith is the Hebrew word. 
And that's all we talked about last week. And so if you have a handout there, just to summarize what we learned last week to bring you up to speed as we introduce this all-important verse, Bereshith, that's the Hebrew word, and it literally can be translated in the beginning. In the beginning. Just a couple things we noted there. Uh, this, First of all, this verse is to be taken at face value. Uh, this verse is a complete, independent, absolute declaration that stands alone. It is simple. It is clear. It is profound. It is authoritative. It is timeless. Grammatically, it is simple. It's just an amazing assertion from God's mind. Also, we didn't say this much last week, but if you look at this verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It assumes God's existence, which is very important for us as Christians because nowhere, including Genesis, nowhere in the Bible do you find God or the prophets or the scriptures trying to prove to an unbeliever the existence of God. Oh, come on, you got to believe in him. Here's why. Here's nine reasons why. Consider the archaeology. Consider this. Consider the logic. Consider the Bible doesn't do that. The prophets just declared it is so. Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. That was the prophet's favorite introductory statement. Thus saith the Lord. Here's what God said. Or even Jesus himself. It is written. It is written. It is written. Or have you not read? Have you not read? He's just assuming the Bible is true. And it assumes that God exists and he is. And God never defends himself. God doesn't need to defend himself. And so he doesn't defend himself even in the first verse of the Bible. He just declares that he is. Here is God, and here's what he did. And his creatures, every single one of us, whether you believe or not, all humans created by God, we are obligated to believe what God has said. Because he's the creator, we are the creature. And thus we see that great truth in this first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Another note about Oh, this first verse of why it's so amazing. Why are, why are some Christians afraid to go into the details of Genesis 1 through 3? I actually know pretty high-profile theologians, Christian theologians, who are, they're actually embarrassed about Genesis 1 through 3. Actually, Genesis 1 through 11. They've said so. They're embarrassed about the Noah's Ark story. They're embarrassed about that talking snake story. They're embarrassed about Adam being made out of a pile of dirt story, Eve made out of a rib, God creating all things in six days. They're embarrassed. These are Christians. Why? Because they think it conflicts with settled, evolutionary, secular, naturalistic, humanistic science. And so they say, mm, they shy away from it because, boy, if you... Going to the details of Genesis 1 through 3, you're going to look non-scientific, you're going to look uneducated, you're going to look idiotic and like a moron. And that's actually what we're called. So they're embarrassed by the truth of it. So the greatest, to summarize it, they say uh, Genesis 1 through 3 is non-scientific or unscientific or contradicts settled science. Therefore, man, don't, don't go into detail of Genesis 1 through 11, especially 1 through 3. It's embarrassing. It's unscientific. And as I read through Genesis 1 through 3, I'm thinking, I don't really see anything unscientific in it. Really. And it all comes down to a battle of presuppositions. Because if you were to ask me, who's the greatest scientific, what is, who is the greatest scientific mind in the universe? I would say God is. Really. Where did science come from? God invented science. God defines true science. 
Therefore, there's nothing in the Bible that God has given us that contradicts true science. And you can even see that in Genesis 1 through 3. We're going to highlight those things along the way. That, no, actually, Genesis 1 through 3 complements true, legitimate, bona fide, verifiable, empirical science. That is if you have certain presuppositions, like you allow for an infinite almighty creator who can do anything he wants to. That's an important presupposition. And that's what we have here. There is a God. He's creator. He created all things. He established all things. He defines all things. He's totally sovereign. He's all-powerful. He knows everything. He is perfect. He's sinless. He's chosen to reveal himself and what he's done to humanity through his scriptures. And what he says is true. He's all-powerful. And he's given us the gift of science in our life. Here's one scientific principle that's consistent with Genesis 1 that's actually quite profound. A few teachers along the way have pointed this out from Scripture. I think it is true and settled even secular science today that all of reality and all the all of existence as we know it, all of life as we know it, can be summarized and defined by five most basic components, realities, or elements. In other words, you don't have reality, you don't have life, you don't have existence without at least these five realities in science, from a scientific point of view. What are they? Time. You need time, energy, action, space, matter. Those five things, everything in life fits under the umbrella of those five elements. Time, energy, action, space, matter. No true scientist, even evolutionary secular scientist, would disagree with that or contend with that. I would say that's settled science. Universally. Time, energy, action, space, and matter. And the first verse in the Bible totally complements that reality because the first verse of the Bible has time, energy, action, space, and matter. Look at it. In the beginning, that's time. God, that's energy. Created, that's action. The heavens, that's space. And the earth, that's matter. That's very scientific. But often we aren't told those things. Often we don't think about those things. So we don't need to spend time trying to prove God exists or what he says is true. We as believers assume it to be so. So with that, let's go ahead and delve in to the rest of chapter 1, verse 1. Last week, the main truth there on that statement, we were answering four questions from the verse uh, verse 1. And these these questions are actually universal questions that all of humanity desire to know and and ask and find out. And the first one was when. when. When did all of this happen? When did it come about? How long has it been around? Those kind of questions. And the world offers its solutions. Well, it's it's eternal. Matter is eternal. We said no. Or maybe it came from the Big Bang, and the Big Bang happened 14 billion years ago. We said no. But the the answer from the Bible answering the question when is in the beginning, and that was the absolute beginning. So all things were created in one week by God in the very beginning, whenever that was. Genesis gives us more details later. And we also pointed out very importantly that Jesus affirmed this truth in Acts chapter 10, 6, where he quotes from Genesis 1, Genesis chapter 2, showing that he took these two chapters literally. Well, let's go on to who. Answering the question, who? It, it implies that a person was involved, an intelligence was involved in bringing all things into existence or in creation. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the who is God. And what I want you to write down about God is the word Elohim. 
capital E-L-O-H-I-M. And just one comment about that that's significant. Uh, Elohim, there are many names of God in the Bible, many names of God in the Old Testament. And the first way that God introduces himself in the Bible is with this word Elohim. Elohim is a name of God. It's a, a personal name of God. But it's not uh, his most personal intimate name. The most personal intimate name of God is Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. We see that later in Scripture. But all throughout Genesis chapter 1, in your English Bible, you'll note it's just God, capital G-O-D. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. So probably over 30 times, that's Elohim in your Bible. Now, in Hebrew, Elohim, it ends with an I-M. In Hebrew, that's plural. I-M is plural. So literally, I could translate the Hebrew, gods, G-O-D-S. Oh, my. Some of you might be in a panic. Really? We are not polytheists, are we? Oh, the Mormons are right after all. No. <laughs> Elohim. Now, actually, Elohim is used hundreds and hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Most of the time, it is translated capital G-O-D, singular. Every once in a while, it's actually translated in your English Bible, G-O-D-S. Think an example is in Genesis chapter 35, referring to a false idol, Elohim, and it's G-O-D-S. So what determines the translation? Context. And also when it's referring to the true God, there's only one God. When Elohim is referring to the true God, it always comes, for the most part, with a, a singular verb. That's very important. So when it's God's, G-O-D-S, usually have a plural verb. So that's very instructive. And that's how we can be consistent. That's how we can know from the context. So this is the one God he created. That's a singular verb. It's one entity that created, and it's the God of the Bible, Elohim. There is a plurality to it, though. There's a reason God uses that word to reveal himself. There's a plurality to God and who he is in terms of his character. There's something about God that's plurality. What is it? Well, the New Testament shows us that plurality, that God is composed of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. That is the beautiful revelation of the New Testament. And that's why when Jesus said, Go make disciples and baptize them, which we're about to do. Baptize disciples who believed in the gospel of Christ. Baptize them in the name of, the singular name of, not baptize them in the names, uh, plural of. It's the singular name of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Totally consistent with Elohim in the Old Testament. The second point about Elohim is if you look at Genesis chapter 2, we're going to get into this when we get to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 4, for the first time in Genesis, God is introduced as Lord God. And the Hebrew there is uh, Yahweh Elohim. So Yahweh, his personal name, intimate name, relational name, is introduced for the first time in chapter 2 for a reason. In all of chapter 1, this is just talking about the God, the creator. He's the creator of all men. He is the judge of all men. All people are accountable to him. All people find their life, their origin, their source in him. So in, in that way, everybody's related to him as the creator. And that's why it consistently uses Elohim, this one creator God of the universe. And then more intimately later, introduced as the personal God to those who believe in him, Yahweh, or in the New Testament, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the answer to the question, who? Where did all of this come from? It came from God, the creator, the creator of every soul. It came from God, the judge, the judge of every soul. And it is 
Yahweh Elohim, the creator and judge, who could also be the savior of anyone who believes. And he's been revealed in the New Testament as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we have the privilege today to celebrate the ordinances of the triune God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as the Lord Jesus Christ came down, Jesus who helped the Father create all things, came down to the earth that he created, born of a virgin, no biological father, had no sin nature, lived for 33 years on this earth, lived sinlessly and perfectly with one mission, to die on a cross to be the substitute for sinners, to absorb the wrath of God the Father for their sin, and to be buried and to rise again as the Lord of glory. And he ascended back into heaven, and that's where Jesus is today, reigning over the world, reigning over his church calling his disciples to go out and preach the gospel so that sinners might be saved. And so now we're actually going to transition into communion to highlight and think about and actually celebrate that great reality and message, the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So right now I'm going to invite our ushers uh, to go ahead and get the communion ready and bring that up. And I'm going to invite everybody here, just open up to uh, 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul summarizes of the meaning of communion. And after communion, we're just going to go right into our three baptisms of the day. So the Apostle Paul, uh, talking to the Corinthians, he was their pastor. And he's writing them from a distance. He's been away for a while. And they were having problems and division in the church. And so... Uh, he wanted to re- remind them they need to be loving, they need to be unified, they need to be forgiving, especially when it comes to uh, celebrating communion. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, he reminds them of how he imparted the meaning of communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. Some churches call it Eucharist. That just means Thanksgiving. And that's a good word, actually. It's It really is to be a time. As you're taking communion, you're supposed to be thankful to the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian here today, you're invited to participate in communion. If, if you know Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, this is time for you to celebrate. It's also time for you to meditate in your heart privately to your Savior, acknowledging your sin, asking for forgiveness, thanking the Lord Jesus Christ for uh, dying on your behalf. And follow along as the elements go around. Just follow along as I read or just listen carefully. Verse 23, the Apostle Paul said, For I received from the Lord, that's Jesus. So Jesus gave this information to the Apostle Paul probably through some kind of revelation, whether it was a dream, an angel, an audible voice. But that's what he means. I received from the Lord Jesus that which I also delivered to you regarding communion, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, which becomes a symbol, verse 24. And when Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So that's what we're doing. When we're eating the bread, drinking the cup, we're remembering Jesus. Uh, the breaking of the bread. This is my body. He broke his body for sinners. In other words, he died for sinners as their substitute. Verse 24, and when he had given thanks, there's that word Eucharisto, where we get the word Eucharist for communion. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so uh, when we drink, that's a symbol of his blood that he shed on our behalf, his cleansing blood. 
And here's a good reminder, verse 26. For as often as you, Christian, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're celebrating, we're looking back, the death of Christ, but we're also looking to the future, Christ's return. That's what communion is about. And we're looking forward with great expectation of Christ's return. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord or takes communion in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of Christ. So he just warns Christians, don't take it in an unworthy manner. That's dangerous. Well, what's taking communion in an unworthy manner? Well, if you're not a Christian, that's dangerous. Or if you're in some kind of compromising sin and you know it and you're unwilling to acknowledge it and repent of it, that's dangerous. So it's just a time to examine our hearts, is all Paul is saying. Repent and God will forgive you. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty in the body of the blood of the Lord. But let a believer really examine him or herself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge rightly. So that's one of the disciplines of the Christian life is examining ourselves on a regular basis. Very, very important. And so uh, God's Holy Spirit helps us to do that. And his truth, the truth in the Bible, because we can't do that objectively. That's one of the most difficult things in the world to do is to judge ourselves objectively because we like ourselves. I like myself. I like me. I don't know about you. So that's where we need God's help, God's spirit, the truth of his word, and those very intrusive, obnoxious barbs from people who know us well, reminding us of our shortcomings and sins that we need to deal with. So with that, I'm just going to give you a minute as our music plays just to talk to the Lord Jesus, thank him, and have the Spirit of God examine your heart before we partake. Well, we have the privilege now to continue in our worship with a song and also just amazing testimonies we're going to be blessed to hear. So why don't you bow with me as we pray and then we'll continue. Father, we thank you for, again, the truth of your word in Scripture, for its clarity and also for the Holy Spirit who is our teacher. God, help us to remember these truths and also to uh, assimilate them or apply them to our life in a practical way, in a meaningful way, in a lasting way with your help. Thank you also for communion, that we can remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it was a substitute for our sin, and also a reminder that Jesus is coming again. And we look forward so much to that triumphant day. We live in light of the coming of Christ. Help us to persevere. And, uh, Father, now we look forward to these wonderful baptisms, testimonies of transformation from your mercy and grace. We commit all this to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.